0: So um, I'll be perfectly honest and tell you, while I was selling some of y'all earlier, some back issues and some various things the last day or two, and I did not sleep much at all last night, and so I feel at my absolute physical and mental worst, which is always good news because it seems like God has a way of showing up when I'm at my weakest, so I'm always thankful for that. Um, You know, learn to praise God for the hardships as well as the good days because truly, um, you know, if I diminish, she increases, it seems, and there's a, a good thing there. There's a good thing where uh, often it's the very best that I can be able to step back and say, okay, well, if anything worked there, I know it wasn't me, God. You know, so well, rely pre- on ridiculous. you. It kind of there you go. That's right. It kind of preaches itself. There you go. And starting into a new book is always, I have a little bit of trepidation about it because the, there's a frustrating thing. I love the introductory kind of first sermon we're starting into a new book because it kind of sets the tone it sets the 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 background and I feel like as we've said before at Blue Ridge because we study scripture in this way and so many times a lot of us didn't grow up with that you know we get little bits and pieces pulled from scripture here and there and we don't really get that context and that background that makes it mean so much more and so many times it makes us get the right meaning from something it makes us really find what it is that God's saying through something when we do understand it in context and as a whole and as a part of Scripture as a whole. And so, anyway, uh, the frustration is this, though. There's 10 million different kinds of themes in practically any biblical book. It's so rich and it's so deep, and there's no way we're going to get all that covered, even the way that we try to preach. And so, I have to kind of pick and choose and say, okay, here's where we're going to focus in studying this. The good news is that you could turn Leviticus into a study that is a hole with no bottom. We, We could be here from now on if we let ourselves and we're certainly going to take some moments and kind of pull apart some of the fine little details of why certain things are prescribed by God and some of the ritual the meaning of the ritual and that kind of stuff but what I want us to see is the big picture. Why it is that God's giving this command to his people, why it is that God dictates how they're to worship him and what the sacrifices are about, and what they, who they point to, okay? So that said, let's look. Uh, we're just going to read through the first chapter of Leviticus. And so grab on tight. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a bird offering from the herd, he shall offer a meal without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood, and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 10: If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. With the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 14, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that's on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, Leviticus, yay! Um, I'll be honest, I don't know that historically, in the many times I've read through it, but I've always of Leviticus as being the most inspiring book I think particularly when I was younger as a Christian it was very easy to get hung up in the details and trying to understand all of the little minutiae and there are so many fascinating little points and like I said we're going to pull some of those and study them And I'm sure that um you know over time as um we preach through this that we'll get to see some of the details of why things are that, as they are but in this first chapter I wanted to just consider why it is that God gives all these rules about making sacrifices? Why it is that God has a purpose in doing this for his people? Um, remember Leviticus is, if you think of it in its context, as part of the Pentateuch, those first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's significant because it falls right after right on the heels of Exodus and that means something Genesis God reveals the creation of the world right but also the fall of man from God's favor Exodus in a big way focuses on the means that God uses to call and guide and preserve his people and how he saves them for his purposes right that's a lot of what Exodus is about so by the time we reach Leviticus with all these instructions about how sacrifices will be offered, we've already seen the grace of God for these people Israel, right? We've already seen God hold apart the Red Sea and allow them to pass on dry land and and drown their pursuers. We've seen God's care for Adam and Eve. We've seen God's care raising up a righteous lineage to serve himself. Um, and so what God gives the people here through Moses is not a way to learn about him, it's not a way to to pursue or to earn their way to his love it's about how in their reaction to what God has done for them, in their reaction to God's grace, how they properly should worship God. And so there's an important principle at work there I think while worship isn't a means to justify ourselves or convince God to bless us, you ever feel like you've ever been around people who Seem like they think that's the purpose of of church is to convince God. Somehow it's like we have a, a pep rally for Jesus, and we get you know everybody happy enough, and we scream it up, or we do enough stuff to convince God to do something good for us, right? And I always say, you know, if you think that you can change God's mind, you can change God's heart based on your actions. I'm not sure you have a right view of God. Not that God never relents, not that God never has mercy because people pray, He does, but it's not about, worship is not about our coming together and doing enough of the right stuff loud enough and long enough until God finally does something for us. It's about a response to what God has already done. Worship is about God's glory. It's about telling the tale of what God has done for His people, for you and for me and for the people of God from the very beginning about how he spread the sea, about how he rescued them from bondage, about how he brought them into a promised land of blessing. And as such, God alone gets to prescribe how we respond to that, how we worship him. You know, that's one of the things I think that um, sometimes gets lost in church, is that God has a perfect right to set the rules. You know, there are things, when I read Scripture, there's stuff in Scripture that i look at and I say, You know, God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Lord, I just don't really see why this thing has to be forbidden or why this thing has to be commanded. I don't see why I have to love people that just don't like me. There's some of those people that just really get under my skin, you know? That doesn't make sense to me, God, that I'm supposed to love those people and seek their best even when they're trying to destroy me. I don't see why, God, you condemn some kinds of uh, behavior and approve others, and sometimes I would condemn what you approve and approve what you condemn. Why, God, do you do what you do? Here's the thing, though. When you create a universe from scratch, you get to set the rules. Until then, God has a perfect right to prescribe how his people live. And God alone gets to set the rules for how he's worshipped. Well, that matters because... The history of man's interaction with God is full of attempts to um, do all sorts of crazy things in the name of worship, um, to make worship what we want, instead of what God's commanded. And I think a part of, an element of God's prescribing specific things about worship is this, that first and foremost, when we come here before him, we need to remember who's being worshipped and who's doing the worshipping. Who's the master and who are the servants? Who is the the gracious God and who are the, the otherwise condemned sinners whom God has shown mercy to? We need to understand that relationship. And if you look at the things that Leviticus prescribes, it was designed to help people understand that it was designed to clarify the holiness of God. Worship is how God's glorified, but it's also part of how he teaches us. How he teaches us to know him. How he teaches us to live for his glory. Um, And so part of what God had to do was teach people the value, the, the critical importance of living in right relationship with him, of drawing near to him and remaining there. So what do we see here? These commands, these sacrifices, man, they're hard. They're brutal. They take work and effort and sacrifice, right? And not that God needs or ever has needed anything from me, right? So the obvious question there might be, why so much? Why does God require so much? Look at these things and picture, picture yourself as I read through this passage, this brief part of, of, of Leviticus 1 again, picture yourself doing this, okay, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. So you have to pick your very best animal. Now, when it says herd, the word here in Hebrew refers to sheep, goats. And in the history of God's people, they were they were nomadic, but they did keep flocks. And probably more times than not, from what we can tell from biblical history, cattle were a luxury. Cattle were something that were kept in places where they settled for long term. But in the um, traveling, in the time that they're moving about, and this is still, you know, in Leviticus, they're starting to become a little more settled, but they're still, you know, it talks about the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temporary place of worship that God's established for them. They're still a lot of people on the move, and so goats and sheep are much easier to, do, to move than cattle. For one thing, they're just physically a lot easier to herd, you know. I, if you're ever trying to make a cow do something it doesn't want to, It's a lot easier to take a goat or a sheep and pull it along with a lead or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, For another, goats and sheep can survive way better than cattle can um, on, you know, just whatever forage happens to be available. Um, Goats have the ability to convert just stubble and dry sticks into some nutrients. They have the right bacteria in their guts to be able to really break down that cellulose in a much more productive way than cows can. And so they, they survive better and so you can feed a goat. It's funny because years back, I had a friend, we went into the um, goat farming business together. And it started because my buddy had bought this piece of property adjoining his house and it was a jungle. I mean, it was horrible. It had like the multiple rows, like canes bigger around than your thumb, grown up everywhere and shrubs and stuff it hadn't been tended in years. It had an old fallen down barn cracks you could sling a cat through. It was just, you know, it was a, it was a disaster. But he bought it so that someone wouldn't, you know, build a house right next to him or something, you know, put a, a garbage dump there or something. We're standing there looking at it one day, and he said, you know, I really wish that field could be put to some kind of good use. He said, I wish it was a good good field, like a pasture. He said, I could really use a milk cow. He said, my kids drink so much milk. He said, it would be great to have a, have a milk cow. And I, in one of those famous moments when you open your mouth and then look back, you know, a few years later and say, oh, why did I do that? I, I said, well, you know, when I did mission stuff in Europe and doing a lot of traveling and stuff, it's very common for people to raise dairy goats, and a goat can survive on a lot worse territory than a cow can. You don't have to have a perfect pasture or whatever. He said, hmm. He said, would goats help clean this up? yeah, we do that. Well, what we did was basically fenced an area that was, just, like I say, it was just a disaster, and got some goats. We didn't get, like, really nice goats. We just got some brush goats initially, and it was not long until they had that place looking like a golf course. They ate, it, The thing about goats is, if a goat's eating grass, it's probably starving to death, because goats don't like grass. They typically like to eat things like poison ivy, and briars, and stuff that you wouldn't touch. Kudzu is a favorite of theirs. They like rough, scrubby stuff. It's what they're designed to survive on. God's made their guts in a way that they just, they and their dentition, their teeth, Everything is designed for that kind of eating. And so they'll eat tree limbs, they'll eat the bark. You can take a a pine, a big old pine log, and lay it out in a field with a bunch of goats, and they will skin it slick in a matter of hours. They love pine bark, like mulch. They just eat it like candy, you know? And so the Hebrews often kept goats and sheep because they could travel better than cows could. And so that's one of the reasons that we get a separate category of offering that's here for cattle and then for goats and sheep and that kind of stuff. And he says, you choose a male without blemish. So imagine you've had a year, goats breed in wintertime and colder weather, wherever you happen to be in the world, they breed in colder weather. Springtime comes along, you fortunate, maybe a doe has two kids, typically they have one or two, very rarely three. So your herd is growing slowly, you know, probably if you're a poor, you know, just living off the land farmer, you don't have a ton of animals. And you see what's going to be your very best, most beautiful, perfect looking animal. The one that's born without any, doesn't have the wonky leg or, you know, it stands straight and all the markings are perfect and all that kind of stuff. And you know when that animal is born, you rejoice over being blessed with such a beautiful animal, but you also know that that animal is committed to the Lord as a sacrifice. It has to be because when you make the sin offering for your people, you have to take the very best one. And so you have to take a meal without blemish. It says, you shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So initially, you have to come in and be accepted. You have to find yourself approved through the priest, and then he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him so this is a very visual symbol that the goat is literally the scapegoat the escape goat the, the animal that is bearing your sin before the Lord then he shall kill the bull or the, the goat or whatever before the Lord and Aaron's son the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar It is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, picture just for a moment, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail. Picture yourself, you know, backing a live bull into a corner and cutting its throat with a knife. And, you know, when you say sprinkle the blood on the altar, you know, we don't really necessarily, when we read this, the first reading, get the fact that you know there's gallons of blood in an animal that size. This is not just a little, you know, kind of, you know, Methodist baptism kind of sprinkle. This is buckets of of hot steaming blood that they're talking about here. Then he shall flay the burnt offering; that is, bone it, cut the entrails out, all that kind of stuff, and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. So you've already got this burning flesh right there in front of you on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. So you've gutted the thing. Human being, how many thousand feet of small intestine is it we say human being? It's, it's tremendous. And like, you know, stretch from here to Asheville or something. If you unwound your small intestine, the human being. A cow has a much more extensive gut than a human being does. So you've got a lot of guts. you got a lot of inside stuff, the entrails, to deal with. And he places all that on the wood that's on the fire. Uh, he places the, the meat on the wood that's on the fire. The entrails of the legs, he washes with water. And the priest burns all of that on the altar. as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A way to atone for sin you ever been around any slaughter at all? Have y'all ever had these? A few of us have, yeah. Um, I grew up with a family that, you know, various parts of our family, we all kind of farmed in some way, um, had relatives that raised and killed chickens and pigs at home. My side of the family raised beef cattle. Um, Fortunately, we sent those out to be slaughtered, but I was around for slaughtering pigs and chickens and all that kind of stuff. Um, Like most country kids, I've, you know, killed and dressed and eaten a rabbit or squirrel or two and uh, quite a few fish and stuff like that. Um, In college, grad school, we often had to slaughter animals. We even call it, the scientific term is we sacrifice them. We even use that terminology, you know. um, that were part of research, you know, for various reasons that they had to be um, killed. Um, We had these guillotines. We had a research line where I went to undergrad we used uh, chickens and doing studies on um, steroid influence and development of embryos. And so they had chickens that had been injected with with steroid hormones and so there was a point where they had to be slaughtered so that nothing would eat them because it wasn't a safe thing for that Those steroid to go into the food chain to eaten by person or an animal or whatever. So we had this guillotine device that was about this big and it was like two stainless steel blades that came together like this to very efficiently lop off the chicken's head. Um, but I had a professor, um, she was just an eccentric person and she grew up in, in backwoods in Tennessee and she thought that it was more humane and a lot cleaner to just wring their necks. And I remember seeing Granny Brunner do that when I was a kid. You know, if you've never done it, you know you sort of sneak up behind the chicken, which is the hardest thing of all, yeah. is getting the chicken cornered up. And my technique, at least, if the chicken's neck is here, you come down like this, two fingers, grab it around the neck, flip it up, and pop. And what you do is you dislocate the cervical vertebrae. It ruptures the spinal column, but stops breathing pretty rapidly, but it still runs around and flops for a good while. Um, I remember one time, I wasn't planning on telling this story, but um, with said goat farming adventure, um, we had chickens and stuff. And one time I went to get some chickens from a guy over in Asheville. And when I showed up to get the chickens, I had my pen on the back of the, the truck or whatever for him. And um, I got done with getting the hens from the guy and paid him for it. And he said, Would you like some turkeys? I said, No, I don't raise turkeys. I, said, I just won't lay any hens. He said, Well, they're free. I said, well, I don't really know that I'm going to have to, you know, I don't really have a good place to raise them or whatever. He said, oh, you don't have to raise these. He said, these are are eating size. Tell me more. And it wasn't, you know, it was a month or so before Thanksgiving. Okay. And it turns out this guy raised turkeys for a commercial turkey farm. He had big houses and stuff. They'd come the day before and cleaned out the houses, but there were always a few birds that they couldn't catch. And, you know, commercial industry, they're dealing with, Tens of thousands of birds. that were are going to run around trying to catch, you know, half a dozen turkeys. And so he said, "If you'll help me pin these up, he said, I'll give them to you. So I just need them out of here. I don't want them dying here and rot." And he said, "I don't want to have to keep feeding them every day and whatever." So we got a piece of plywood and hemmed up about four big turkeys and corn. And um, and I mean, they were they were like twenty five pound bird. They're huge, you know. Got to put them in the thing. Took them back, fed them corn for a little bit in barn whatever for a few weeks. And it came around time we were going to slaughter chickens. Well, one thing I knew from experience was you were not going to pick up a 25-pound live turkey by the neck and wring its neck. So, okay. Logic enough, I've, I've, you know, I've watched cartoons. I've read books, you know. Okay, so I had a a hickory stump that I rolled over into one corner of the barnyard. And I had a 55-gallon metal barrel because I thought, boy, that'll be, you know, we lock the head off on the stump with a hatchet, drop it over in the barrel, let it bleed, right? Because it's also you know, things are going to be running around. I've seen this with chickens. friend of mine lived next door, not the guy who owned that field, but a friend wanted to participate in the process. Not what you would call a farm boy, but he wanted to be involved. I said, yeah, sure, come on down. Run the chickens next, got them all processed and whatever, so we came down to the turkeys. Well, we sent his son to go and get one of the turkeys out of the barn, and he came running back and said, that thing hissed it." To- <laughs> and it was chasing him around the barn so we finally got hemmed up, got the turkey, got up there. So my buddy has the ankles of the turkey, the turkeys have ankles and his feet, you know, his hands, got his head laid up on the block, I've got a hatchet. I dropped the hatchet, cleanly behead the turkey, you know. Um, and we thought that, like I say, we're just gonna drop it over in this barrel and let it kind of bleed out. That was where we had missed something very important. Uh, in the same way, their chicken's body still convulses quite a bit after it's dead. A 25-pound turkey does a lot of convulsing. It also fights back, even without the head. And by the time it was over with, we were covered in blood from head to toe, and, and both of us looked like we'd fought a wildcat with these scratches where the pin feathers had come down the edge of our face and just drawn blood. This thing had beaten us to death. About the time that I dropped the hatchet, my buddy was over there, had the ankles, and he was kind of giving it the airplane ride, you know, like your kids, you know, things, beating him to death. Um, Slaughter is not a simple, easy, clean process. Um, In other cases, in labs, we dispatch, that's another lab term, we dispatch rodents that we use for things, typically Rodents, you take a number two pencil and lay it on the back of the animal's neck and just pull it, and it just locates the spinal column. I killed a lot of things. I should have been a mobster or something, I guess. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, I remember as a, as a teaching assistant, I got sent to pick up materials for a lab unit. And, and they first told me, they said, said I need to go to the abattoir. And I was like, what in the heck is that? Turns out in central North Carolina, they use this grandiose French term for what we call a slaughterhouse. But uh, the abattoir, and um, without going into too many details, I didn't eat in the cafeteria or anywhere else for a few days after that. If you've ever been around a slaughter operation, there's just a a heaviness, a stench, a humidity, and just a dank smell of death and blood. It just hangs in the air. It's a horrible thing. So why am I subjecting you to hearing all that right before lunch, right? Um, I want us to understand this wasn't a theoretical kind of thing that God is commanding here in Leviticus. This is not a sing four songs and hear a talk and say a prayer and go home kind of worship. God meant for these people to be deeply connected to their worship, for them to be covered in blood and the stench of death when they do these things. God intended for these people to know, at some level at least, the cost of their salvation, to know that their forgiveness, knew that blood had to be shed for that, to cover their sins. And in the process, for them to learn the value, the cost, the the, just the all consuming importance of being right with God and worshiping worshiping him in the way he's due. And in time, as the sacrifices were changed, and remember they weren't abolished because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Over time, we saw how Jesus would become the fulfillment of this obligation for sacrifice. Um, When we read through Isaiah recently, in the very first verses, in chapter 1, God says this, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, and cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You know, in Hosea 6, God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And that passage gets quoted and re-quoted dozens of times in the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted uh, passages from the prophets. Hebrews 13 tells us that through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And we'd be tempted to say, in fact, I've heard it said, that God didn't take away the requirement for a sacrifice, but he sure made it easier. I think i take some exception with that idea. Yeah, we don't have to slaughter a live bull in church, thankfully. Um, we don't have to get spread the blood all over the church house and stuff like that. So there is that. But which is objectively harder when you think about it? To do a physical act, however vile that might be, or to muster a spiritual attitude like love or devotion or obedience or or true praise? Which of those is really more demanding? I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. I know about me, so I know about you. Um, I can go through the motions. I I can show up. I'd kill an animal if I have to, or I can sing a hymn, and follow the ritual, or repeat a prayer, I can avoid screwing up the sacrifice, or maybe just stay awake through the sermon, you know, but true love for God, let alone loving you guys, you know, having a right attitude, putting the right value on worship, that's hard. In my opinion, in my natural flesh, that's just impossible. But praise God for his words in the very next breath there in that first chapter of Isaiah, where he says, come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse or rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now, how can we worship God like he Really desires. It can't be just by doing, because that requires endless repetition of these grueling, bloody rituals that never fully satisfy God's wrath. You know, that's the thing about the sacrificial system. It was never done, it was never complete. It had to be offered again and again and again. <coughs> It couldn't atone it could atone for what had been done but it couldn't change the hearts of the people who seen them and the ritual sacrifices in the tent of meeting and the temple they pointed forward through time and history through god's plan they always pointed to the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice which is christ so what's the difference why is christ so important well for one thing, his death for God's people frees us from all of this. All of this slaughtering animals and casting their entrails on the altar. All that kind of stuff. Christ's death for his people frees us from that, but it's more. In Christ, our sins aren't just atoned for, but we get transformed. That's what the new covenant is really about. is about transformation. It's not just that we are forgiven for what we've done in the past, but we're transformed to be able to live in ways that glorify God. We ourselves are redeemed and make new creatures, as Paul says. And maybe the most important thing, we're set free. We're set free from guilt because many any man's in Christ. He is a new creation, and he takes on the righteous nature of Christ. And we can know that we are approved before God We're free from that burden of endlessly striving to please Him. Because, you know what, if you're in Christ, God is already as pleased with you as He can ever be. You cannot make God more pleased with you than you are if you were in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can add to that. We're free from the need to atone because Christ's death atoned fully and forever for God's people. So what's it mean to be in Christ? It means to receive and know God's grace shown in the person of Jesus. It means having the Holy Spirit at work in us who guides us into all truth and guides us away from sinful rebellion against God and who teaches us to love Him. That transformation, we talk about this so much that the evidence of our salvation is not an action that I've done like going to the temple and sacrificing animal. It's a change in my inward heart that only God can do that's been done for me and that I express through worship and holy living and seeking to obey God. That's how I know that I'm saved is God is transforming me. And if you're like me, there's an awful lot of it I can look at and say, that ain't Steve. You know, There's a lot of it I can look at and say, God is doing that in spite of me, not because of me. When we have that transformation, what flows from that is right worship. It's a desire to worship God like God has asked us to. And from that we get an understanding that this system of blood offerings and hard work to earn God's favor was always a shadow. It was always an image of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. If there's anybody out there who doesn't know that your life's hidden in Christ, if you don't find God's Holy Spirit at work in you, transforming you into a new being, a new creation someone who loves God and loves to praise Him, don't waste a minute, please. Nothing you're doing is more important right now than knowing peace with God through Jesus Christ. And if you truly seek Him, I can tell you this, that if you find yourself aware of your sin and your need for salvation and you call on Him to save you, God will not turn you away. As you believe on Him, you will be saved. For God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy on us. Thank you, God, that um, like your people Israel, we can clearly see the ways that you've expressed your grace to us, the ways that you've preserved us. Before we knew you, before we acknowledged you with our mouths, before we ever sought to serve you, God, you were already good and gracious to us. And you prepared a way for us to come to you and to know you God, forgive us when we make worship about us. When we turn church into something that's supposed to somehow serve our needs. Lord, probably some of the most frustrating words for every pastor, they certainly are for me, and I've heard them over the years um, a few times. When couples drift away from church, and you check to see what's going on, and they say, well, It just wasn't meeting our needs. God, thank you that you do meet our needs through worship, that you do provide for us, that you provide your grace, that you provide knowledge, that you provide um, a special portion of your Holy Spirit who guides us and enlightens us. God, forgive us if we ever, ever think that our coming here is about us. That our coming here is supposed to serve and meet some need of ours. And that if it doesn't, we're free to cast away meeting with God's people. Lord, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world because the very purpose of worship, the very reason we come together is to sing your praise and glorify you, to give back to you praise for what you have already done for us. A debt we could never repay and yet a sacrifice our hearts long to make of honest worship our notes are not always perfect our words are certainly not our prayers Lord could be more polished sometimes we're tired and grumpy and our interactions with people aren't all we want them to be but God You accept them nonetheless. And you bless them. And in Christ they are perfected and sanctified before you. Thank you God that you not only call us to make a perfect and acceptable sacrifice for atonement. But God that you have become that sacrifice. That you are the very thing that you have required. That you have given us the ability to do what it is that you've called us to do. And Lord for that we praise you. Thank you, Father, for meeting with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.